turn to Deuteronomy 14. We're going to continue our study in Deuteronomy. We're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper on the back end of this because I believe it ties in well with what we see in, in Deuteronomy. And usually the children do take the Lord's Supper with us, but, but we're going to do things a little different today as the, as the text leads. Last week, as you're turning to Deuteronomy, last week we saw uh, how, that how we worship must be different than how the world worships. And that's because we serve the one true living God. He's unique. He's set apart. He said in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, literally in my face. There is no first, second, and third God in our lives. There's one God with no rivals. We, we will build upon that today as Moses is continuing to tell the people, not only about worship, but he's telling them what kind of people they ought to be. And it's interesting that worship and, and our lives go hand in hand. The kind of people we are to be and how we worship go hand in hand. Our lives literally are an act of worship. How we live is a reflection of what and who we worship. It was interesting in Exodus 34, 29, when Moses met with the Lord, his face glowed. Well, he, he, he didn't necessarily notice that at first. But you see, true worship is the, has the byproduct of us becoming more like Christ. Sometimes we don't necessarily notice it, but others notice it. Others experience it. As we grow in the Lord, as we worship the Lord, as we read in God's Word uh, and study and become more like Christ, sometimes we don't necessarily see the change, but our spouse sees it. Our, children's, our children experience it. Our co-workers, others around us notice it. And, and we worship the Lord because He is great. He alone is worthy. And as we worship, He transforms us into His likeness. And what we see today in chapters 14, 15, and 16 is a glimpse of the people that Israel were to, was to be. But not only Israel, it's a glimpse in who we are to be because everything that He says to them regarding Israel, He also says to us. You see parallels all throughout the New Testament. God in His character has not changed. God and what He demands from His people have not changed. And it's all built upon the singular fact that we serve an awesome God. We serve the one true living God. He has put His Son on a cross to die for us. And because of that, we worship. God had chosen Israel out of nobody. They were not a people. God in His grace chose them to be a people. And they responded in worship. God in His great grace has put His Son on a cross to, to pay the penalty that sin demanded. Guess what? His people will worship because of that. And what He's telling them is not only will your worship be different, but your lives will be different. Every area, you'll notice as you study through the Ten Commandments, really the Ten Commandments played out here in, in Deuteronomy, but in, in chapters 12 through 26 really, Everything, every aspect about their life was to be different and it was to be worshipful. Guess what? Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 for us. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The, mo the smallest, the smallest, most insignificant things that we do, eating and drinking, to the glory of God. And God demands that His people be a certain kind of people, and that's what we'll see today, and I hope anyway, and, and he tells Israel this, but he's also speaking to us. Because again, everything that we see here is relayed to us, again, affirmed in Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. 
So Deuteronomy 14, we're obviously not going to read three chapters. I'm going to hit the highlights here. But first and foremost, you see this in chapter 14. And we kind of looked at it last week, but I wanted to hit it real quick again. God demands that His people be a holy people. God demands that His people be a holy people. You see that in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 14. Look at, look at verse 2, just, just real quick to see it. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And he goes in to say, because of that, there are certain things that you're not going to do. You're different. You're mine. And, and much of what he tells them regarding things that they were to do or not to do was for the simple fact, don't do this because the world does, does it. You're to be different. You're to be set apart. We said even down to verse 21, not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. What's the big deal about that? The big deal is the pagan religions did that. And God is saying, don't do that. Don't do that because the world does that. And then people are going to see you and they're going to be confused. Are you mine or are you theirs? Do you belong to me or do you belong to the world? Simple reason. Don't do it because the world does it. And their status as God's people was to be reflected in every single area of their lives, even down to not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. And, and you know, belonging to God, being His people, being in covenant with the one true God impacted every area of their lives. It all goes back to the covenant that God formed with them. And that covenant impacted every area of their life. Being the people of God, God being their God impacted everything. And the issue was holiness. The issue is being set apart, being different. All because the, the, the master, this was a reflection of their master. It was a reflection of the king who had entered a covenant with them. The, you see the phrase uncleanness is referenced four times in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 10, verse 19. He mentions the word uncleanliness, uncleanness. This goes way beyond the animal. It goes way beyond the issue of clean and unclean foods. This is about the people of God being holy. It's not about the animals. It's about the people. Some of what God calls us to do or not do, to do or to avoid. It's not about that object. It's about His people being holy, His people being set apart. Much of what God called Israel to do, much of what God calls us to do, has no real inherent value that it's bringing to us. The reality is a lot of what God calls us to do costs us. But here's the value, representing our king. The value is this, representing the character of our king. Not eating this, eating this. Caring for widows and orphans, rejecting this, doing this. It all goes back to the character of God. Much of what they were called to do, again, it, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I care, for, I care for these people in my life. No, no, it cost, but yet it reflected their character. It was about them being different, about them being set apart, and their life was to be governed by their relationship with the Lord. The relationship, the covenant relationship that God entered into, into with them governed every area. It wasn't about rules and regulations. The relationship governed. The relationship governed their lives. And it's the same in your marriage. What, what governs your marriage? Rules and regulations or a vow? I hope that the vow does. Do rules govern or does love govern? I hope love governs. 
You, you, didn't get, you didn't get married to set out to follow a bunch of rules and regulations. You didn't get out and say, okay, honey, tell me how many uh, other women I can talk to. Tell me how many nights I've got to do this. Tell me, no, no, no. The vow regulates the marriage. Love regulates the marriage. It's a relationship. And it's the same here with God. There's a relationship. There's a covenant that's been entered into with, between Israel and God, but also between you and God through Jesus Christ. And that regulates the relationship. I mean, you, you look here at the titles just in the first few verses of Deuteronomy. They're called sons of God. They're called belonging to the Lord. They're called a chosen people. They're called a treasured possession of the Lord. Those titles that God bestowed upon them governed the relationship. When I married Karen, I gave her my last name. It governs the relationship. She's mine, I'm, I'm hers, for better or worse. Governs the relationship. It's not a list of rules that you go into my house and you see, well, I can do that. No, no, no. I love her. She loves me most of the time because of me. And that governs the relationship. She's easier to love than I am. It, but it's the relationship. And that relationship changed everything. Everything about their lives. Real quickly, just so we, we see this, in Ephesians 4, I just write it down, I'll read it. Ephesians 4 makes it very clear. Paul, for three chapters, has told them what God has done for them to make them the people of God, to bring them into relationship with Him. Even though they were sinners, Christ had forgiven the sin. He had sealed them with the Holy Spirit. They were His. And in, for three chapters, and starting in chapter 4, Paul starts to tell the implications of that relationship. And look what he says, the very first verse. Therefore, because of everything God has done, because you are the people of God... I, the prisoner of the Lord, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk differently now. Verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, futility of their mind being darkened. He says, you're not, a, you're not, you're not them anymore. Don't walk like they used to walk. You're mine. And that relationship regulates everything. It changes everything. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. He says that's the reason why you don't join to those, those women down there at the temple. Why? Because you're my temple. I live in you, Chris. That's why you don't do that stuff. Because anything you join yourself to, you're joining God to. Because He lives inside of us. We're to be different. We're to be holy. They, we've been adopted. He says, you don't do that anymore. We, we saw last week in 1 Peter 2, 9 that we're the treasured possession, that we're chosen. As His people, we should treasure His grace in choosing us to be His people. And out of treasuring that, we seek to glorify Him. We're grateful. We're grateful. And what he's telling them and what, the, what we know as far as New Testament believers as well, we bear the name of Christ everywhere we go and in everything we do. Please hear that. There is no, there is nothing, no thing we do, no place we go that we as believers do not bear the name of Christ. 
And you see that in, in Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, he, he, says, let no, he says, let no impurity or, or anything even be named among you as is proper with saints. He says, therefore, be imitators of God, but as beloved children, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Never mind, do it. He says it shouldn't even be named among you, as is proper for saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral, no impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance with the kingdom of God in Christ. The, the Old Testament rarely, hear me, it rarely points out the reasons why certain boundaries exist. Here's the reason, the relationship. Relationship. It's all governed by a relationship. And I bet if we went to every single one of your houses, there would be certain rules, certain things that your family does that my family doesn't do. Why? Because that's your family and not my family. And you're going to tell your kids to do certain things or not do certain things that over here, this family, they don't care about. And we're not talking about sinful things. We're talking about areas where we can disagree. Guess what? The relationship regulates the behavior. I, I remember I asked my dad one time, why, why we got to do that? He said, because you're a Basham. Well, the, I said, we lived across the street from a family called the Hearts. I said, well, the Hearts don't do that. He says, well, then go live with them. You're not a heart. And we did everything with the hearts. They, weren't, they were great people. Even to this day, my, my parents still travel everywhere with the hearts. But the why I did or didn't do certain things had everything to do with who my last name, what my last name was. It was Basham. It wasn't heart. He says, when your last name is heart, you can go do what the hearts do. But it's Basham. And God is telling them the relationship regulated everything. You are an object of God's gracious redemption, His choosing, His election, His favor. And guess what? Your obedience comes out of that. You've been chosen. You've been redeemed. Live like it. I'm holy. Guess what? Therefore, my people will be holy. And in your home, your rules and your regulations, if you will, what you tell your kids, guess what? They're a reflection of you. They're a reflection of you, aren't they? You, you have certain things that you tell them do or don't do. Why? Because they're important to you. That's exactly what God is saying here. This is important to me, so do it. But not only a holy people, God demands that His people be a trusting people. And you see that in verses 22 through 28. He, he says, you may, look at verse 26. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. And go down to later on, he says, you, wherever you eat it in the presence of the Lord and rejoice, you and your household. They would take the first fruits and they would eat them. What were they saying? God is teaching them to trust. You know, if you've got an apple tree and the first, you've been waiting all season for that apple tree to produce apples, it produces apples. You know what God says? Eat them. Quick. Eat them. Enjoy it. Well, don't I need to set some aside? No, no, no. Eat them. Why? Trust me that there's more where that came from. That's what he's teaching them. Trust me. There's more where that came from. And it's the same thing. You look at chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, because this, this concept runs from 14, 22, all the way to 15, 18. If there's a poor... Look at, look at, this is how he's saying, you trust me and this is how I'll know you trust me. If there's a poor man 
with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in the land with which your Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand. That's, that's why the sermon is titled, Soft Hearts, Open Hands. You shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be with you in the land. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Why? Because it was a reflection of God. And if His people were walking around uncared for, unloved on, and, and uh, doing without, it was a reflection on God that was not accurate. Period. And He's saying, trust me. And the bottom line is this. You and I will only learn to trust God by trusting God. You will, you will only learn to trust God by opening up your hand and giving things away. Bottom line, you do not learn to trust God by hoarding. You do not, it's not some, you're not going to wake up one morning and all of a sudden, oh, I'm a generous person, I trust God now. You're going to do it by gradually trusting God and by being generous. The way we cultivate generosity is by being generous. And God is saying, be generous. Why? Because I'm your God and I'm a generous God. I'm a generous God. Reflect my character. And you see the same thing in, in uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 6, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each man must do in it as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundancy for every good deed. He's saying, trust me. Sow bountifully. Why? Because I'm going to help you to reap bountifully. You'll, you will have all your needs met. I'm your God. I will take care of you. You're my people. It's interesting here. We saw in, in chapter 15 about, about giving and, and, and being generous in that. It's interesting in Ephesians 4, 28, Paul says, And he who steals must steal no longer. Why? So that he will work with his hands to have something to provide for his own family, but to have something to provide for anyone who is lacking and in need. Even the thief, Paul says, don't steal anymore. Get a job to provide for your own, but also to provide for the other. Interesting. Even the thief, he says that. And, and what this passage and what all throughout the Bible is teaching us is, as, as confrontational or as convicting as it can be is this. There is a direct link between generosity and our love for the Lord. There is a direct link between our generosity and our love for the Lord. We are all unworthy. God has chosen to bless us, and the gratitude of that overflows in our generosity to others. Everything I have, God, you've given to me by grace. Use it for your good. Use it for your good. And that takes trust. It requires trust on me. It requires trust on you. Every single one of us. 
And, and Paul, I mean, uh, Moses tells us explicitly here in chapter 15. He, he goes on in, in verses 12 through 15. He says, hey, when you, when you free that slave, do not send him away empty-handed. You lavish goods on him. Why? Because that's exactly what God did when they left Israel. They were, I mean, Egypt. They were slaves in Israel. God set them free, and they went home with tons of stuff. And God is saying, therefore, you do the same thing. And you see that in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then you shall, he shall serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from, liberally from all your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. You shall give him your... Give him as, listen, you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember, that, that's the key word in Deuteronomy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. It shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Their present, their past redemption fueled their present generosity. They were looking back to the fact that, you know what? God is calling us to do exactly what he has done for us. That's the point. You and I today, God is calling us to do exactly what he has done for us. I mean, without, without beleaguering the point, and I'm not here to twist your hand, but it just is God's sovereignty, couldn't have planned any better. The reason why orphans and widows are on God's heart is because that's who you and I were without Christ. That's why God cares about that so much. It is a picture why adoption is such a big deal, why fostering is such a big deal, why caring for widows and orphans is a big deal. It's because that's who you and I were without Christ. No, there's no greater picture of the gospel than that right there. And, and he's saying, the reality is this. You and I are the, are the guys and the gals in verse 17 that because we serve a good master and we have been set free, they say, you know what? I love you. Hey, pierce my ear. Do we serve a good master? Absolutely we do. And what would happen in that day is if they served a good master and they said, look, I'll voluntarily serve you as a freed man. Then that master would take that slave's ear and he would pierce it with an awl. And, every, and guess what? That slave who was now set free would do everything as a freed person that he once did as a slave. Why? He would do it out of love. He'd do it because he served a great master. That's a picture of the gospel. We've been set free. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now God says, in your great love for me and gratitude for what I've done, you serve me as a freed man the way you would as a slave because you've been set free. And we tell the world about our king and about our master. When you saw that slave walking down the street, or actually freed person now, and you saw that all in his ear, you know what went through your mind? That guy serves a great master. That all said something about that, that freed person's master. That guy serves a great master. He would serve him as a freed person, but he'd serve him like he was a slave. 
Why? Because he had a great master. And God is saying, if you're going to be my people, you're going to to have to trust me and you're going to have to be generous because I'm generous. And generosity was reflected and they trusted God to provide all of their needs. And God, in his goodness, even the land he's taken them to, he saw it. He said, I'm going to wire this thing. I'm going to rig this thing so you have to trust me. You're gonna, in Egypt, you remember they had, they had an irrigation system of sorts and it would water the, water the crops. He says, you know what? You're not going to have that in Canaan. You're going to have to trust me to send rain. And God has put in place, we're going to have to trust him. In his grace, he's binding our hearts to him and he's saying, you're going to have to trust me. And faith and gratitude produce generosity, period, period. We see it in in 1 John. He says in verses 17 of 18 of chapter 3, but whoever has, he says, "We we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. It's about reflecting the character of our Father. It's about representing our Master. And just like in Israel's day, for us today, generosity will always be a barometer of the heart of a church. Generosity. You want to to measure true worship? You want to measure the heart of a church? It's in generosity. It's not in numbers. It's not in any of those things that the world would measure it. It's in generosity. Is that a grateful people? But not only a trusting people and a holy people, God demanded that His people be a celebrating people. A celebrating people. And you see that in the latter half of chapter 15 and overflowing into the first half of chapter 16. God had put... God orchestrated for their calendar to have many, many festivals that ran throughout the calendar year. And here's what the function of the festivals were. It was to remind them every festival had a specific remembrance, and it reminded them of their history. It reminded them of how they got to where they had gotten. It reminded them of how they had become the people that they were. And everything about those festivals reminded, it it was to encourage God's people to remember and to celebrate what God had done. To celebrate that you once were not a people and now you're a people. It's to remind them, hey, oh, by the way, this is how you became a people. This wasn't on your own accord. This is grace. It reminded them year after year, we have a history of God showing His faithfulness. That would strengthen their present living because year after year after year after year, God had always been faithful to them. He wasn't going to stop now. And everything about these festivals was to be done in joy and gratitude. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. Celebrate. Even the word festival brings up, that's a joyful time. You know, they, they had festivals that celebrated the canceling of debt. Well, guess what? Their debt had been canceled in Egypt. They had been freed from a debt in Egypt. Well, guess what? If you're a believer in here today, you've got a sin debt that through Jesus Christ is either canceled or not canceled. 
If you're not here with the blood of Jesus Christ by faith applied to your life, you still have a sin debt hanging over your head that needs to be canceled. Jesus is the only way to cancel that debt. And every, every single one of these festivals that we see in chapter 16 culminated in the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper. Every single one of these festivals, if you read them in chapter 16, culminate right here, Jesus giving of His body. Jesus being sacrificed on a cross, pouring out His blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's no more sacrificing of lambs. Why? Because the one true Lamb has already been sacrificed. And we celebrate all of this that Israel celebrated and more right here. Right here. Remember. These festivals would prompt them. It would remind them of, of great, the great things God has done, the, the, the history that they experienced with God, His faithfulness, and it would prompt worship. It would prompt celebration. And listen to me. What Moses is reminding them and teaching us is this. True worship is about gratitude for what God has done and how He bountifully provides. That's worship. We are grateful for what God has done. We are here when we do this, we are here to worship Him. When we go out there in our, in, in our, in our other lives, outside of church, same persons, worship. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do. I mean, I, I, I try not to, whether you're watching the Seminoles try to lose again and you feel like you need to take heart medicine, worship the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. As hard as that is, I, I, I texted, and, and, and I say that not, I, hear me, hear my heart. God convicts me regularly about how much I care for those games. I'm telling you, I, I, I've told, I intentionally try to go to bed so I don't watch them, so I don't care. I try to wean myself off on them. My, my problem is this, do I care more about whether FSU wins or loses, or do I care more about the orphan who doesn't have a father and a mother? Do I care more about whether FSU loses, or do I care more about glorifying God in everything that I do? Because sometimes my care for FSU causes me not to glorify God if you saw how I behaved. That's the even bigger problem. That's why we don't go to games. What happens in the bathroom's house stays in the bathroom's house. But Daniel is spot on in, in Psalm 95. We ought to get more excited about the things of God than we do about the things of this world, whether it's our team or not. We're here to worship. We exist to worship. And everything about Israel's history pointed forward to this right here, that Jesus Christ would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, that Jesus Christ would be the Lamb who, if He spreads His blood over your life, the judgment of God would pass over. You see here the Passover supper. In Egypt, judgment was coming to kill the firstborn, and they said, look, Hebrews, take this blood, sacrifice a lamb, spread that blood over the door frames of your house, and when that angel comes tonight to judge the firstborn. If he sees that blood applied to your doorframe, he will pass over you and not judge you. That is exactly what God is going to do one day. He's going to judge the world. And if Jesus' blood has not been applied to the doorframes of your life, there's going to be judgment. 
but for every one of us who by faith have applied. I mean, that took a great act of faith. If you were, if you were an Israelite in Egypt, if that thing didn't happen and all this blood is smeared all over our house, it's going to be real obvious who we are. It took faith. And it takes faith to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I've tried to get it lots of other ways. The only way forgiveness is by you. And I, by faith, apply your blood to my life. Pa- forgive me of my sins. Pass over my life with your judgment instead blessed. That's faith. And Jesus inaugurated with his disciples before he left this earth. At this Passover supper, he says, this is a new covenant, the Lord's Supper. And he says, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this blood, do it in remembrance of me. And that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you in your seats as a... as If you're here with your family, great. If you're here as an individual, pray. Make sure you can come take this in a worthy manner. Hear me, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, stay in your seat for your sake. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Those who eat and drink of this in an unworthy manner, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is for believers who have had their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and are trusting that alone. The, 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 the bread here represents Jesus' body. The juice represents His blood. The salvation comes through no other but Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I pray that we would remember, but I pray as we take this that we would worship together. I, I pray that we would repent if we've become ungrateful for God's salvation in our lives. I pray if we would repent if we've taken that for granted. I pray that we would re- repent if, if, we've just, if we're living lives that just really go against and contrary to that. I, I pray that we would repent if we maybe here have lost the joy of our salvation. Maybe that's some of us. David prayed that in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Return to me the joy of my salvation. In, in, in Revelation, he tells the church at Ephesus, you lost your first love. As you take this, maybe your response today is repent. Maybe as you sit in that pew before you take this, that you would just worship God, just you and God, and tell Him how grateful you are that He saved you. That by His grace, He's, grant, he's granted you the privilege of being called His Son. I pray that God, you would ask God as you take this, God, what's the appropriate response in my life? Given what you've done for me, given your immense grace, how am I stewarding that? What's the appropriate response? Does my life accurately reflect the salvation that you've given to me as best as we can in these sinful bodies we still live in? Maybe it's your worship. Do you come here to worship or do you come here for a, do you come here out of ritual? Do you come here and really give God your all? Do you praise him as he's worthy or do you just go through the motions? If so, repent. Repent. Ask God to create in you a clean heart. I'm not going to come up here and we're not going to take it together. Hear me. Sometimes that's confusing and that's on me. You take this, go back to your seat and you take it when you're ready. When I feel like everybody has had an ample opportunity, I will come up and close the service and pray. But you come, take this. You're taking it before the Lord. You're taking it in worship of the Lord. You're taking it in remembrance of all the Lord has done. This is about Jesus' blood 
by faith having been applied to your life. And we do this every month so we never wander far away from the gospel because that is why we are who we are. And that is the root of everything we do. It's the glory of God.